Cool. We're in 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. We've only got a couple messages left in 1 John, and then we'll be on our way to the great behemoth of a book called 2 John, all 13 verses. We should be able to finish that by summer. Um, Go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5. We'll start in verse 6 and read through verse 13. And we're not going to read all of these verses the same way if you're reading in the New King James, which I am. So starting in verse 6, 1 John chapter 5, says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness. Now, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but the parentheses start here. Okay, and I'll just kind of lean over to the side maybe and say, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, and now I'm going to move back to the center in parentheses and keep going. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Don't worry, I'll explain that confusing bit in a little. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, we ask uh, that you would be glorified in our study, that as the word is preached this morning, your church would be edified, that we would receive good nourishment so that we can grow up as a body into uh, the head who is Christ. Uh, We pray for your Holy Spirit's illumination, the witness that you've given to us that is even in us, Um, So I pray that you, God, would be our teacher and that you would lead us unto all truth just as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're talking about witnesses. There's witnesses, people and things that have said things about Jesus. And people have been talking about Jesus for a really long time. Uh, If you include the prophecies of the Old Testament, people have been talking about Jesus for longer than Jesus has been on earth. Right? Since Genesis, people have been talking about Jesus. The people are really interested in Jesus. The question, who is Jesus? And then usually tacked onto the end there in italics, right? Is, who is Jesus? Really? You know, that that question will be asked uh, by every generation um, and must be answered by every individual. Uh, We're reminded in our world of this periodically when Time Magazine will do a thing with Jesus on the cover around Easter, National Geographic. We'll have the special edition, which is just a reprint of the last special edition they had about the same tomb that's still there. You know, and, and, and we'll see that. And these publications are not religious. They are run and written by people who do not worship Jesus as far as I know. Um, but nonetheless, they still show us that Jesus is marketable at the very least and that he is remarkable. Um, and, all, and all of these things, you see them, uh, these magazines or publications, History Channel, whatever, present their findings as pertaining to 
uh, what they'll call sometimes the historical Jesus, uh, implying, of course, that the Jesus of Scripture and the Jesus of the church, the Jesus that the church worships, is somehow less than historical. Uh, anyway, people talk about Jesus, even if they don't talk about him correctly, but we do have this one thing in common with these people. We like talking about Jesus. It's sort of my one thing. Um, it's, it, it's kind of the thing we do, right? We like talking about Jesus, and, and we like talking to Jesus as well, and that's a really important thing to remember. Uh, but we know that we, as, as, um, as family, you know, as, as born again and adopted children of, of God, we, we talk about Jesus in a different way than the world talks about Jesus. Um, John talks about Jesus in a different way than Pontius Pilate did. No surprise there. Mary talks about Jesus differently than the Pharisees did. And for, for some people in his day, Jesus was the villain of the story. And not many people would admit to that position today, but there are plenty of people who talk about Jesus like he was a good man, but not the God man, right? And John, in talking about his friend Jesus, who he has seen, touched, handled, he's making a case for the real Jesus, the true Jesus, and he's calling witnesses to testify of who Jesus really is. Because already at the time he was writing this letter, there were plenty of people that were saying they knew the real Jesus, who was a secret Jesus, who was a different Jesus than the one everybody else talked about, but he showed up to me in, in, in my vision, and it was, it was special and different. So John has to come and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm telling you, there's witnesses, there's people that have seen him, and there's people, experts, that have said things about him that are true. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 5, which uh, was in our sermon last week, we kind of made a big deal about recognizing God as Father. Uh, we are born of God, which makes him our Father, and this knowledge makes all the difference for everything, right? Knowing God as Father is of the utmost importance. You don't want to merely think of God as that absentee landlord who lives in a nice part of the universe and expects you to deal with this dump. You don't want God to think of God merely as a, a, a harsh judge with just the list of requirements with the or else attached to it, the end of each. You know, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he, he teaches us to say, Our Father. And that's really where our personal understanding of theology starts, our personal understanding of theology. Of Jesus, of God, of God as our Father, of Jesus as our eldest, eldest brother. And just as Jesus teaches us how to relate to the Father, he says, relate to God like you're his child and he's your Father. So now John, Jesus' best friend, is teaching us of how to think about Jesus. So how do you think about Jesus? Now, sometimes John is very, very clear, very simple, kindergarten level. Love one another. Okay, that's an easy one. It's hard, but it's easy to understand. There's no hidden meaning with that one. There's no, like, you know, spooky numerology attached to it. Like, count the letters and then you'll find that. No, it just means love one another. That's great. We don't need to parse our way around the directives because most people would... Uh, of course, most people would rather have a conversation about the verse than a plan to how to obey the verse. But you can't find it with that one. You just got to do it. You just got to believe it and then obey it. With the important stuff, John doesn't leave us the option of, you know, the parsing our way around obedience. He just says what he means and there's no getting around it. Love one another. That is the point. But in other places, John is a lot less clear. John says things, we read this in chapter 1 and 2, uh, John says things like, if you sin, you're of the devil. But we all sin, and Jesus forgives sin, 
And you are not of the devil, but everyone who sins is, and you sin. But you're fine, but watch out. And you're like, ah, this is really uncomfortable. I'm having trouble following here. John has some head scratchers. Okay, he really does. Even John 1, 1, right? The word becoming flesh, like that's not, that's not a simple thing that you can draw a little picture of. You know, it's complicated. It's true, but it, it's complex. Okay, so we believe that everything in the Bible is true, of course. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Love one another, super clear. This passage, uh, specifically verses 6 through 8, this is one of the most unclear passages that we could find. And when you study it up and read on it, you know it's unclear because there are more opposing views on the interpretation of this verse than there are for most other verses in the Bible. You've got this commentary talking to this commentary and saying he's wrong and this is what I think. And, and everyone's kind of trying to figure out what this whole blood and water thing means. There's not a whole lot of strong convictions, but there's many suggestions, which shows that we're in an area that's less clear than love one another. The disagreement comes from what these three witnesses are. The water, the blood, and the spirit. Read verse 6. Again, it says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness, because the spirit is truth. What is going on here? Uh, water, blood. For a change of pace, the spirit might be the easy part to understand. And that's not usually the way it is. That's the Holy Spirit. Everyone pretty much agrees on that part. And that's the witness that is in you. This is the, the spirit of God. Okay, the blood and water, they're kind of up for interpretation. So when we come to a passage that does not have a crystal clear agreed upon meaning, we come to it with humility. Uh, we know we, do, we don't get to decide what it means. That's not our job. We're not coming here to judge the word and, and impose on it some of us, the things we think. But we do want to lean, uh, but when we do lean towards one interpretation over another, we, we want to have an open hand about this and not be real super dogmatic. So I'm going to share with you some of the options here, some of the theories, then I'll tell you what I like best and what I think. And I might be wrong, but here we go. Some would say that the wall, and have said, and this, this, the, the change, the, the different differences of opinion go back all the way to the church fathers. So it's not like this is a new argument. We've always been confused about it, and that's fine. Just own it. Some would say that the water is the water of baptism and the blood is communion. Jesus comes to us through, spiritually, through these two sacraments, these two God-ordained rituals. That's one idea. I don't think it's the simplest idea. Occam's razor can cut a finer slice. Okay? On the other end of the spectrum, maybe maybe that's too spiritual for you, and you're like, ah, I don't know, that seems a little, a little weird. On the other end of the spectrum, really, is the idea that the blood and water is referring to physical birth of Jesus. A woman goes into labor, the water breaks, and there's blood. And John is talking about the humanity of Christ, um, and that, that's what it is. But it, it, it doesn't really explain why he would say not only by water, but by water and blood, as if specifying like details about his birth that seem unnecessary to specify doesn't seem like those two are referring to the same event, the water and the blood. So, some say the water is birth and the blood is death. Ah, that could make sense. Uh, I think that's my second favorite theory. Uh, Jesus appears to us and is revealed to us in his life and in his death. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Where else does the water and blood show up? How about that the death of Christ? We made a big deal of this in the Gospel of John. Jesus died of a broken heart, quite literally. His heart ruptured 
Fluid surrounded the heart in, in a last-ditch effort to save the vital organs. When a Roman soldier pierced his side with the spear, blood and water gushed forth. It may seem strange to us, but that blood and water mixture really meant a lot to the early church and even into the Middle Ages. They saw a parallel with the animal sacrifices and ritual cleansings of the Old Covenant, where both blood and water were essential ingredients. So there, there you go. Now you've got some things to think about. You can juggle these through and, and uh, think about it. Pick your favorite. Uh, of course, people scramble these up and take a piece from here and one from there and try to see which one fits best, which is what I've been doing when I study this. Um, but again, when there's something unclear or there's options and all of them, none of these are heresy, okay? Um, you, when something is unclear, you return to what is clear. So if there's something you don't understand, please make sure your feet are standing on something you do understand, something firm. What is absolutely, clearly, definitely, for sure, the focus in this passage is Jesus Christ. That's for sure. Okay, we're on the same page. That's Christ the solid rock, I stand. No matter what perspective you take, you are most definitely, absolutely referring to Jesus. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. So we know that whatever John is doing, he is talking about the Jesus of the Gospels, exalting Jesus, preaching Jesus, the fully God and fully man Messiah. And if we don't entirely understand his arguments, the means by which he is witnessing about Jesus, um, you know, and we, we don't necessarily understand his arguments, we can definitely agree with his conclusions, having read the Gospel of John and this far into the into First John. But we want to understand his arguments, and we want to, um, so, so let's think about this some more. What, what do all these interpretations have in common? What are water and blood in their most basic essence they are physical properties even the more spiritual interpretation saying this is this is a believer's baptism and it's communion that's the the water and the blood that okay but even those things are physical properties baptism and communion are physical representations of spiritual realities the blood and water of birth and death are physical realities the blood and water that came from the wounded side of the body of Christ there was real physical stuff we know that John had some trouble in the church addressing those who he calls antichrist them's fighting words people who denied that jesus came in the flesh that's already been an argument that he has established in first john okay it says those who deny that christ is coming in the flesh are antichrist that's it so blood and water whether it's blood and water at the birth or in communion or at the death or blood and water are both things of the flesh of this material world and john is saying that the things of the physical realm blood and water and things of the spiritual realm the holy spirit himself all agree in witnessing about jesus now that's not very specific and it sure sounds like a cop-out doesn't it but you can get the idea of what john is trying to communicate in general now with this broad broad perspective we want to return to what is clear and address it, uh, the other material with a, a real spirit of humility i'm not going to pick um you know, one, dogmatically, full of conviction, but I'll tell you what I think is probably the case, and my favorite commentators agree with me. So, I think that John, in writing about a public witness, he uses that word a few times in this passage, right? A witness. He's writing about a public witness of, of Jesus is referring to the water of Christ's baptism, not yours, Christ's baptism, and the blood of his death on the cross. Okay, we know that the New Testament, in, from the New Testament, excuse me, that these were the witnesses that the apostles cared about. That really gave them their apostolic uh, um, badges. 
you know, their, their credentials, sort of. So, so Peter, in the book of Acts, he's trying to find a replacement for Judas. He put forth the requirement. They're like, we, tw- 11, don't like it. 12, way better. We need one more guy. And he says, we have to find someone who was a witness, not just of the resurrection, but of John's baptism. And that was the qualification set forth for one of the 12 apostles. Um, they had to be a witness of John's baptism, even to that day, which means they had witnessed also the resurrection. For John, the apostle, the water and the blood are things that testify of Jesus. They are things that say something true about Christ, and they are means of Jesus coming to us. Verse 6 says that Jesus came by water and by blood. In verse 8, it says that water and blood bear witness or give testimony about Jesus. What does the baptism say about Jesus? That he associates with sinners. Baptism is for sinners, and John recognized that, says this doesn't fit. And Jesus says, no, I'm fulfilling all things. Okay, he fulfills all righteousness. That's what he says to John the Baptist in Matthew 3.15. Also, at the baptism, and this is going to be important for our, our text in John, at the baptism is when the Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove, and a voice comes from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John, uh, sorry, Matthew 3.17. And John is saying in this passage, he says, You listen to men, shouldn't you listen to what God says about his Son? What does God say about his son? That he's beloved and he's well pleased and the father's well pleased with him. When does he say it? At the baptism, when Jesus came by water. Matthew 3.17 is super important. There's a lot of essential theology right there. Jesus came to associate with sinners, but not as a sinner, as one who fulfills righteousness, the righteous requirement of God's law, and he is the son of God, and what he is offering in his life is pleasing to the Father. All of that is revealed to humanity at the baptism of Jesus. What does the cross say about Jesus? Well, we're, we're finding that out for the rest of our lives, aren't we? We return to the cross. We, we return to the cross until we go to heaven. But again, we see some basic truths here. The cross shows that Christ associates with sinners, but in, in a much more real way than baptism, even. He took the place of sinners. And again, just like at his baptism where he says he must fulfill all righteousness on the cross, Jesus shows that he has fulfilled all things. He cries out, it is finished. And it is on the cross, which is a public witness, again, it is on the cross, like in the waters of baptism that we see Jesus declared to be the Son of God. He prays, Father, forgive them. And in this prayer, we see Christ's purpose to forgive sins. And the cost of that purchase, he was forsaken in our place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is at the waters of baptism and on the blood of the cross that we see Jesus for who he really is, the historical Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, it would be better to meditate on the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus on the cross than to read the special edition of Time Magazine that will come out this next Easter invariably. If we want to know anything about anything, we have to be open to listen to the experts in that field, right? You have to at least be open to be being taught. If we want to see Jesus, we listen to expert witnesses. The water of baptism and the blood of the cross show us the real Jesus, the Son of God, come to save sinners, put to death, and mighty to save. That's the Jesus that we see. And he came in the flesh. These three agree. The baptism, the death, and the spirit. The water, the blood, and the spirit. What's the spirit? We see the spirit on Christ at the baptism. 
right? Descends like a dove. And according to Hebrews, the Spirit was working at the crucifixion as well. Hebrews 9.14 says that Christ offered himself up through the eternal Spirit. But while Jesus had the Spirit without measure, we don't see the Holy Spirit come in full force until Pentecost, right? After the ascension of Christ. I believe John is saying the Spirit in you, he says the witness is in you, the Spirit in you tells you the same things that were declared at the baptism and at the crucifixion of Christ. It is the Spirit of God in you that gives you the assurance that yes, Jesus has come to be with sinners and I'm one of them. Jesus has come to take sinners' place. He came to take my place. He has come as the beloved Son of God to make me a Son of God. He has come to fulfill all things. This Jesus has saved me. Those conclusions come because the Spirit of God ministers to people's hearts. The Spirit bears witness of Christ. Jesus says in, in John, He will lead you unto all truth. And He says in John 16, 13, It is He that testifies of me. That's what he says in, um, sorry, that was John 15, 26. The first one was John 16, 13. This is an internal heart change. The Spirit of God works in you the truths that he has already written in Scripture. The blood and the water and the Spirit agree. The Holy Spirit says the same thing that Scripture does, the same things that were said at the baptism of Christ and at the cross of Christ. And as the Holy Spirit makes his home in your heart, he ministers this truth to you in a way that you feel it. It's finished. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. That's, that's the feeling of being born again, realizing that you don't have to pay for your sins. The Spirit of God makes that realization for you in your heart. It's the Spirit of God that lets your spirit cry out, Abba, Father. That's what Romans tells us, Galatians tells us. So the blood and the water and the Spirit agree. The Holy Spirit says the same thing that the Scripture does and the same things that have been said at the, the baptism and the cross of Christ. As the Holy Spirit makes his home in your heart, bearing witness to your spirit that you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit makes you love Jesus and love his word and love his Father. If you love Jesus and his word, that's a pretty good evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. Um, and, you know, this might be the hard part, but let's, let's lean into the honesty. If you believe certain things are true, but you do not love Jesus and do not love his Father and do not care about his will or his word, you probably don't have the Holy Spirit. You might be religious, but that's not the same as being saved. Jesus sent his spirit to change hearts and to bear witness of him. John, John brings forth these witnesses to testify of his best friend Jesus, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Under the old covenant, a matter could not be decided without two or three witnesses. So John brings the best. He brings three witnesses. The third one's the best. It's God. That's the expert witness. The Holy Spirit is the star witness that testifies of Jesus. Now look down at verse 9. Wait, did we skip some? Yep, we did. Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. God has testified about Jesus. At the baptism, at the cross, in our hearts, he testifies of who Jesus is. If we care anything about a certain matter, we ought to be concerned with what God says on the subject, right? He does get the, he gets the final word. If we want to know Jesus, what we really want to know is what God himself says about his son, okay? That's who we want to know. Now, you see we, verse, we skipped verse 7 and 8. So, let's talk about those verses and why I skipped them. If you're in the ESV or 
any modern translation, you didn't skip anything. You probably wondered why I had those, all, those extra words at the beginning of the sermon in between the verses. If you're tracking with me in the New King James, uh, then you've got this bit about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit bearing witness in heaven. And hopefully you have a note in your Bible saying that the, the older text, the in-you text, omits many of these words, okay? So this is why you come to church, for textual criticism, right? And, uh, and story time. Um, so here's what you need to know about these words. It's in your Bible and it's not in the Bible. The person sitting next to you, that can make you uncomfortable, right? And so I want to put you at ease here as your pastor um, that these words, that the Father and the Spirit and the Word, that's Jesus, are in heaven. That's true. That is, that, that is true. They are not part of the original letter. And here's some strong words coming from the pulpit. They don't belong in your Bibles. <laughs> um, ha, guess who? Oh, no. Um, okay, here's why. Here's why. None of the Greek manuscripts before the 1500s included this passage from the word in heaven in verse 7 to the word earth in verse 8. No one with a Bible during that time read these words, not only in Greek, but in all other translations. The Bible was translated into over 500 languages in the first 400 years of the church. Did you know that? They were translating a lot, and it's not in any of them. Um, originally, they were written in Greek by John. Um, where and, and these words were not written in the original Greek. They were translated, uh, the original letter, of course, was translated into Coptic, Syriac, Latin, and many other languages. And in all of those manuscripts, the old ones we have, this verse isn't there. Uh, and the oldest copies of the Latin Vulgate, okay? Latin Vulgate, um, that's the, the official Bible of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. It was translated in the 400s by a guy named Jeremy. We call him Jerome. Um, but it would become the most important translation for about a thousand years. And when his version of the Latin Vulgate, he translated it from the best manuscripts he had available. This verse is not in there. In addition to the manuscripts, we have volumes and volumes of the writings of the early church fathers. There's something cool about the early church. They were really into the Bible. Man, they liked the Bible. Every copy of the, if every copy of the Bible was destroyed in an instant, we would be able to reconstruct most of the New Testament from their writings just because they quoted a whole bunch. And you know what? They don't quote this verse. You have, find them quoting verse 6, you find them quoting verse 8, they don't quote verse 7. And, and in the early church, the big argument, of course, was based around the Trinity. The theological debates that raged around the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit, and that, that happened a lot in those first centuries. And this verse would have been really nice for them to have, don't you think? I mean, they could have just gone to this verse and proof text and end of argument. You've got in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's God. Bam. Done. And this verse could have ended a whole lot of division. And it didn't because they didn't have it because it wasn't written yet. Um, the church fathers defending an orthodox Trinitarian theology never used this verse because it wasn't in their Bibles because John didn't write it. So how did it get there? This is the fun part. Have you ever written in the margins of your Bibles? Yeah, that's been going on a long time. Uh, we know there are notes in lots of medieval Bibles. If the Bible is handwritten, then distinguishing handwritten notes from the text from the notes on the text would be would be difficult. It seems that these verses were commentary, someone's interpretation about what John is trying to say. So the game of telephone happened, and the notes became more common, and it was adopted as part of most Bibles being published by. Um, 
you know, by the by the 1500s when that when that came along for sure. Um, then, once upon a time in the year 1520, a man named Erasmus of Rotterdam wanted to put together a good working copy of the Greek New Testament. At this point, the leading Bible translation was a version of the Latin Vulgate, which by now included verse 7. Erasmus goes to all the original sources that he could find, the oldest Greek, the oldest Hebrew, uh, the oldest translations, and he publishes his Greek New Testament. And scholars in the church read it, and they didn't like how verse 7 was conspicuously missing. And Erasmus said, well, I looked, I read the books, it's not in there, it's not in that, so I, I didn't find it. I don't want to publish it if it's not there. And there was outrage because they're like, it's an important verse. It's got the Trinity in it. Like, you can't just throw that stuff away. So Erasmus said something that he would later regret. He said, if you show me one Greek manuscript, I'll include it. So someone forged one, slipped it under his door, and it's in your Bible. Really? That's, uh, someone wrote their own copy. They gave it to him, and he, he, he included it in the next edition of the Greek New Te Testament. Erasmus's Greek New Testament was the text from which the New King, or sorry, the King James Bible was translated. So we're stuck with it until the 20th century when translations again went back to the original sources and now there are no new translations that include it. So there it is with a footnote, a fun story. This verse isn't authentic. So you read it as a commentary rather than as inspired text and it's not so bad. It's a little bit like white chocolate. Yes, it's not real chocolate. We get it. But like, neither are French fries, and they're still good. It's still fine. Um, so that verse, um, there is no need to have a crisis of faith over this by any means. There has never been in all the translations and in all the, uh, the revisions and all the manuscripts that they find and Dead Sea Scrolls here and other scrolls in Egypt and everything, they've never found scripture that denies the gospel. You can never read a, bad, a, a translation of the Bible bad enough where God doesn't send his son as savior of the world. I mean, there's bad translations. There's ones I don't want you reading, okay? Um, but we, we just can't find one bad enough where God has abandoned it and said, oh yeah, all this false doctrine got in because the, the Bible didn't work out. That has not happened. God has preserved his word. He has preserved his word faithfully from the beginning, and you can be confident that what you are reading is true. We just read some of the verses a little differently. Back to verse 9, which is the inspired word of God. It says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. So God speaks about his Son. We should listen. It's his testimony that matters, right? Now, we all respect our trusted sources. That's what John is saying. He says, you've got people you listen to. you got people that you believe. It says, we receive the witness of men as this verse says. So, but God's word is mightier than men. So if you're going to listen to what other people tell you, you should probably just listen to God. Well, what does he say? God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what God says. So when it comes to Jesus, we've all got to trust somebody. You know, you weren't there. You didn't see this stuff happen. You can read a book and you can take a class or you can listen to what God says. And God says, this is my son. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Right? John has been recording testimonies of these witnesses. Now he's telling his readers, your witnesses too. You have a testimony. And, and how you answer the question, who is Jesus? Well, this is the most important thing about your life. 
John is writing to believers who have received the Holy Spirit, who who know how know and believe in 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 Jesus. They love Jesus, and he tells them that they are a witness to Christ as well. In verse ten, he says, "He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar." because he has not believed the testimony that God has given to his son, of his son, excuse me. You have the witness in yourself. Uh, You are a witness because you have the witness. The Holy Spirit testifies to you about who Jesus is. Because of this, because you have that spirit that, you know, Jesus says the one who believes will will have uh, fountains of living water overflowing. (laughs) This witness is supposed to come out of you as well. You are a witness to the living Christ. You've been called to this. Or or you believe something else about Jesus, something other than the word of God. And John says that that one who doesn't believe the things God says about his son are people that call God a liar. That's not a place you want to be. When we reject the testimony of, of God himself, of what he has to say about Jesus... We are not just denying the church or the Bible or a tradition. We're denying God to his face. And I know if there are, are, there's not many people that intend to call God a liar, but that's what you're doing if you continue in the sin of unbelief. It's calling God a liar. And yes, unbelief is a sin. In fact, some might say it's the sin. Charles Spurgeon said, The great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of very lightly and in a very trifling spirit, as though it were scarcely any sin at all. Yet, according to my text, and indeed according to the whole tenor of the scriptures, unbelief is the giving of God the lie. And what can be worse? It's, it's a wrong thing to, tell, to call a trustworthy person a liar. And, and many will say, maybe you've heard them say, maybe you've said this at one point in time, you know, it's like, oh, I want to believe, but I can't. Sounds humble, sounds kind of like an intellectual honesty, you know, and you're just really authentic and true to yourself, blah, 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 blah. But it's not right. It's not right. You know, if I say, if I say outside the weather is great, which it has been, by the way, and there's, and there's free food out there, which I can't actually speak if that's true. But if I said that, if I said outside the weather is great and there's some free food out there, go get some, go, go enjoy and, and you say, I want to believe you, but I can't. Okay, that's, that's on you. And, and you would say, I, I want to believe you, but I can't. The Bible never says try to believe if you can. What it says in this order, by the way, is it says repent and believe. Unbelief may be your misfortune, but it is also your fault. Do not call God a liar. Believe what God has said about his son. God has said things about his son. At his baptism, we've seen who Jesus is. At the cross, we see who Jesus is. By his spirit indwelling in us, we see who Jesus is. And the world you live in will see who Jesus is from you. The witness is in you. Here's the witness. Here's the testimony that God has spoken and that you are entrusted with. This is the message we believe and preach. Verse 11. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
This is the witness. This is the testimony that is in you. This is the, the testament, the testimony that you are entrusted to speak that God has given us eternal life and that that life is in his son. Heaven is real, everlasting life, only through Jesus. You can phrase this any simple way you want, but this is, the, this is a testament. This is the testimony. Life is in Jesus. We talk about believing in Jesus like it's a thing we do now in order to get to heaven a little later. That's not really the way the apostles talk about it. That's not really the way Jesus works. It's not the way heaven works. The one who has the Son has life, present tense, right now. Eternal life is a quality of life as much as it is a quantity of life. It's life as it was meant to be in fellowship with your maker, serving him, loving him, being with him. And he who does not have the Son of God doesn't have that kind of life. You know, yes, heaven and hell are real. Death is not the end, it's the beginning. But knowing Jesus is a matter of life and death now, today. It's a matter of how, if you're going to live a life of life or a life of death. The one who has Jesus, has fellowship with Jesus, has life right now, as life was meant to be. The one who does not have Jesus right now is a dead man walking already dead and John is writing to believers and he wants the believers to have the confidence that they can know that they have this kind of life now we've been warming up to verse 13 for weeks um, we've been referring to 1 John 5 13 in all, virtually every sermon in 1 John and here it is verse 13 these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now the words in my Bible there, that you may continue to believe, continues in italics, meaning it's added for clarity. It might not be in some of your translations. It's not like verse 7, which was added for other reasons. This really does give the best explanation of the original language. John is talking to believers and encouraging them to walk in faith and to keep on believing in what they already believe. This is where we need to end here. You've, you've, looked at, you've looked at the witnesses for Jesus, at the star witness, God himself. God says some things about his son. John has written about this and he has done this so that you can believe and keep on believing. If you hear what God says and you don't believe it, then you, you, don't, you don't have God, you don't have Jesus, you don't have the life that exists in him. If you hear what God says and you do believe it, then you'll know you have eternal life because it is God who says... Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe that once and forgotten, John reminds you. He reminds you of what God says, and we need reminding. He reminds you of what you can know about Jesus. He reminds you to believe so that you can continue to walk by faith, not just stand in one position, but actually walk and progress by faith. Our lives as Christians are lives of continuous, progressive faith. We grow in faith. We move from faith to faith, from glory to glory. We look to Jesus and continue to walk closer to him. Looking and knowing the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus declared at baptism and death, will confirm you in your convictions of heaven and eternal life. If eternal life is Jesus, then you will be more and more convicted of your established eternal life the more you consider who Jesus really is the beloved Son of God, who takes the place of sinners, who is mighty to save by his blood, and willing to call you clean. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are good to us. Um, we're just 
that's just all over the place today in this message. Uh, and I, I trust you to bring your word to the hearts um, in the right way at the right time. Jesus, we look to you and we say with Peter, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. We say to you, Father, we believe you. We believe what you say about your son. And, and we want to respond to what you, what you said to do. You said, hear him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Our, our ears are open. Our hearts are open uh, to receive what Jesus would call us to. We thank you for not just leaving us to guess our way to this good salvation. Um, but the, you have testified and you've even placed the witness in our hearts. We thank you for the Holy Spirit of God. Bless your church. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and